Am I interrupting anything? No, welcome. We could use a little anti-venom in the snake pit. Thank you very much. Just move along. Thank you. Hi. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm Bleakest House, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with Sparknote, Jeb Lund. Hi, Jeb. Hello, Lady Deadlock. Sorry, just kind of came out. I got all bleaked house. Oh, boy. Okay, smart people. Before we get into that, do we have any pod business? Mercifully, no. <laughs> Mercifully, no. Um... This is where you hear the Denison's chime, I guess, but you could probably stop doing that, I imagine, and uh, save ourselves more time for this plot summary, which really is only a sentence long. But if there's nothing else, no. I will get into a plot summary slash timeline rant about smart people. Dennis Quaid is playing yet another professor slash writer in Smart People marginally more believably this time in my opinion not that it matters much in a movie that itself seems like a writing prompt that somehow got all the way into development before anyone realized the story doesn't realize who it should be about but in any event here he's lawrence weatherold a widower who's conducting not only his victorian lit classes but also his entire life on autopilot Lawrence is unaware that his young Republican daughter, Vanessa, Elliot Page, has gotten into Stanford or that his son, James, Ashton Holmes, easily etching himself onto the Mount Rushmore of non-credible college boy poets of film and television, is dating a student of Lawrence's or writing verse good enough to get into the New Yorker, lol. But when Lawrence falls on his head trying to retrieve his briefcase from impound, don't ask, doesn't matter, and the resulting seizure renders him unable to drive for six months, everything changes, sort of. His adopted brother Chuck, Thomas Hayden Church, shows up to do what Thomas Hayden Church characters do. Couch surf, mooch, drive Lawrence around, try to loosen Vanessa up, drop occasional Wisdom of Fools koans on Lawrence, who is also ineptly trying to date his ER doctor Janet Hardigan, Sarah Jessica Parker trying her best with a functionally unplayable part. Vanessa gets high, then drunk. Dr. Hardigan gets pregnant, Professor Quaid gets a Poochie went back to his home planet book deal, and at no time does the story, which one contemporary reviewer compared to, quote, an entire season of a sitcom whittled down to a single episode, have the courage of its convictions. We're told it's around Christmas. The production didn't bother hiding the fall foliage in literally every shot. We're told Dr. Janet is the head of the ER department. The production would also like us to believe that this Sarah Jessica Parker character was a freshman in the fall of 1992, making the character 34 years old in her timeline, which, no. It also makes her younger than this correspondent, which, bless her heart, but also... No. <laughs> the script by Mark Poirier is unconvincing on matters medical, academic, and character. Lawrence always taking up two parking spots is not a personality. And while Quaid and especially Paige have some nice nuanced moments, Quaid and Parker have no chemistry, and the barrage of shortcuts taken by the script in the last act would be unfortunate if it weren't a relief. This movie isn't even bad, exactly. But it isn't good, and it isn't good because it doesn't know what it is. Did I miss anything? 
No, I think you got it. I was trying to think of a pithy way of summarizing my feelings about the movie. And what I got was I don't like it at all, but I respect it partially. Okay. Like, I think, you know, we're kind of doing the same thing of approaching this script. It It's from that kind of indie genre of let me give you a slice of life of some erudite people like the writer mm-hmm. who are not likable but you will learn something with them. And to me, like that is not a fun way of spending time. If I need to spend time with a a pedantic shithead who's trapped in his own brain and doesn't know how to be happy, I have like... You have this podcast for that. (laughs) I I, I have being awake for that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, same. Uh, So, you know, it's not really escape. And because it feels so grounded in maybe the unhappiness of reality it's so much easier to kind of leap on the the inaccuracies that you pointed out and go come the fuck on like if you're going to make me have a bad time make me have a real bad time like an authentic bad time in those moments i i sort of balked at it and i think like you said the almost like the close of a shakespeare tragedy last act where you're like two months have gone by since that person left the stage that accelerated rate again conflicting with like we're trying to be very real here made me go like come on no no and yet at the same time i'm not sure i don't respect good chunks of it you know there's something there's not nothing here Mm -hmm. but it just like i said it doesn't have the courage of its convictions at any point like it's afraid to be not small but just kind of small like snow globe size story which that's fine. I like movies like that. I will give it this. It gets in and out in about an hour and a half. Yes. Thank um, you. So thank you. Granted, like the series of family snapshots over the credits are doing a huge amount of lifting, none of which I believe except James sort of carefully standing away from the twins. And of course, it's fucking twins. Jesus. But I just... <laughs> <laughs> if if you believe that these damaged, pedantic, chafy people are deserving of happiness and that your story of their journey, not to it, but at least in that direction, is worth telling, then mm-hmm. commit. And then I'm not going to notice all this shit like a bibliography of a freshman comp paper on Bleak House, which is either 40 pages long or three pages long, depending on the shot. And the bibliography is all this stuff about like teleology and Derrida's on that list. Like I should not be paying attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they make a point of his book on how you don't know how to read is basically his taking apart contemporary critical theory. Mm -hmm. And so you can see how like maybe he would have been a professor who wanted you to like, oh, you better get Derrida and so sure in there. You know, that's what I need. Right. But yeah, like it's how how long is this and what was it about? And then also if like that's what he's if this critical approach is something he's deconstructing, how could you even if you were a cynical editor, hack it down to you don't know how to read? Well, and then how is he not like the celebrity professor? Instead of teaching a semi-stadium size lecture hall full of sleeping frosh who have no choice but to be there because it's freshman comp. Oh, God, like they make just such a point of how little he cares 
And then also, like, you're a critical theorist, but you're also teaching Tennyson. Like, that seems to be colliding with itself. But yeah, again, if you have chosen to believe in your own characters, your audience is not necessarily paying attention to that. I don't know. I found this yeah. often very frustrating because there were glimmers of something interesting, but then it so often retreated and put a whole bunch of decision making by characters off screen, but it's supposed to be a character study. Ugh, maddening. Right. I don't think either of us would dig into like, this isn't how like tenure works. This isn't how public <laughs> publishing works. If no. we didn't have a character arc for Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Janet Hardigan, that like, I, it makes no sense. Nothing that she's doing. I mean, why, why is she interested in this professor? Why is she trying to win him over? all these years hence like why does she go back for a second date after he has been exactly the blowhard that she thought he was back when she was an undergrad right you're getting a confirmation of your priors why would you undermine it after having probably the most satisfying possible iteration of the i want to find out i was right dinner like maybe she's going there looking to find out that she was wrong and this guy that she sort of had a crush on is actually a good person. But it clearly, you know, he monologues for 45 minutes. She makes a point of noting the time. And at yeah. that point, this dinner has turned into, you were right, just go. So why come back? And then if you're going to come back and eventually be won over by him enough to be involved in his life, why is it that then we find out that you are such a childish person that you're picking a fight in an airport over somebody's failing to emotionally respond to a bit of news you have not shared with them. Yeah. Right? She's having this extraordinarily childish reaction and lashing out at him and basically severing ties in a public place over something that she swallowed. She's not let him know that. It's juvenile and unfair in exactly the same way that that he's a juvenile of like expecting at least at the start of their relationship of expecting always to be heard and be conversationally and intellectually dominant in the relationship and simply be appreciated for being there i mean these two levels of of immaturity are not going to work themselves out without like some dedicated labor on the part of both the people involved in committing them and instead she just sort of passively waits for him to show up and apologize and then says, oh, great, fine. Okay, you've you realized you were wrong in the middle of a, a fight I picked that was on completely uneven and, and context-free ground. Thank you all as well. And it was like, a no. it was a scorched earth fight, also. Yeah. And I understand that emergency medicine and OBGYN are not the same discipline, but girl. <laughs> if he f didn't remember how to use a condom, maybe you, a physician who never has her hair up and is showing cleavage at work, by the way, like this bugs the shit out of me, bugs the shit out of me when I was recapping ER, bugs the shit out of me now. Yeah. Like your, your colorist does wonderful work, Ms. Parker, put <laughs> it up in a bun. You're a doctor. They also make a point of having him say like, well, I, I don't know how to use condoms like this. Is my, you know, I've been married. I was married for so long that I never had to, you know, because I got married in the 70s. I never had to figure this out. And at that point, like you've got a middle aged man, you know, you might be concerned with like his maintaining uh, his erectile function and just go ahead and take care of it for him because that makes it kind of hot, too. Like, so you could avoid this problem of this guy. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, here, let me make it hot. Now it's being done correctly. 
Thank you. I don't know. I'd... Well, and also, like, everyone's been living in the world. Like, she was in college in the early 90s. Yeah. Whatever. This is... <laughs> This was just another <laughs> day at the office. Get a fucking grip. <laughs> Ugh, I don't, I don't know. Maddening, truly. And then in that same scene, he starts being kind of postcoitally clingy. And she, like, you can see her skin crawling. Like, it's actually quite good acting and subtle. Mm-hmm. And I would have been interested to see, like, how do these two people who don't remember how to do this and shouldn't be doing it with each other in the second place... Like, how does that look? Or how does it look if she's like, I'm pregnant, but also I hate you. And then they have to try to co-parent twins. Like, I'll watch that movie, this movie, in which Tyler Barrel from Revenge gets a poem published in The New Yorker. Fuck off. (laughs) And also, look, you know, I I paid to be droned at about Tennyson once. (laughs) Once. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I don't, don't need it. Don't need it anymore. I mean, of all... My mother made me read In Memoriam, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Once. <sighs> God. I, I guess I'm madder at this movie than I thought I was. I, it's like, sometimes they're just bad or stillborn, and it's like, well, you know, everyone tried. This is like, there were a bunch of different somethings here, Ellen Page was always working. Mm -hmm. And even in a movie that you're like, ugh, Page is like, you see her working, but it's not gross and performative. Um, Yeah. It's just, it's a waste with that said. And her whole like young Republican thing. And can I ask why she, her young Republicans club is in a strip mall? Right. Why is her young Republicans club in a strip mall? Why isn't it at her school? Yeah, because it usually happens right after school, not at like seven at night. And I also think like a lot of parents probably wouldn't be like, yeah, just go down, hang out, hang out around the uh, the coin laundry. Yeah. It looks like a lot of pros work out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, God, just another example of this movie not really having an ear for its own music, which is... A shame. And like even Thomas Hayden Church, which is like, oh, it's this Thomas Hayden Churchy thing. But like, he's good at it. Yeah. And I was mad at the movie because I was like, I miss this guy. What happened to him? Like, where is he? Like, why did, why was it only sideways and like this and two other things? And, yeah. You know, why didn't we get a Thomas Hayden Church assance? The the only <laughs> Thomas Hayden Church thing I didn't like about the movie was the fact that he gets her high and his initials are THC. And I was like, two on the nose. <laughs> I sort of was not thrilled about the fact that we saw a naked ass and it was his and not Quaid's, but... It's a cromulent ass, Sarah. It's a, it's a decent ass. I'm, I'm saying, you know, it was not if, a, if, if you can ask for ass, it's not bad ass. It was not a bad ass. And uh, <laughs> no one else in film can have a mustache that has bedhead like Thomas Hayden Church. <laughs> right. It's a tiny cannon, but it's an important cannon. All right. I had a clip with Paige, like doing a bunch of hollering about Dick Cheney and nominating himself, but mm-hmm. I don't think we need it. We'll get into uh, the Quaidosity in a second, but are you prepared to rate this? Did we do contemporary reviews? We sort of did. I'll link a bunch okay. in the show notes, but they were kind of 
like A.O. Scott liked it pretty well and called the script excellent, I think, which is not something I would agree with. Um, Mick LaSalle for the Chronicle did not care for it. NPR's review was kind of a roundup of other reviews that couldn't quite decide what they thought about it. And Variety was like, this is not quite baked and it will do well on cable. Like it absolutely was going to be one of those that HBO bought and then just aired a bunch of times at like 3.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, contemporary reviews sort of had the same issues with it. I think that we did that. It just felt like one of those minor chord festival movies that you don't hear about again. And Ebert did not review it that I could find. So oh, there you go. That probably is that. Well, as for my rating, I mean, I'm torn. I always want when they get like this to just sort of call it exactly down the middle and be like, for every good thing, there was a bad thing. Let's get the mm-hmm. fuck out of here. Five. I think it was better than that, but not by much. And I'm not really sure necessarily where it was better than that. Elliot Page, billed then as Ellen, you know, like you said, is terrific. She's the best part of the movie. And I think when you were saying at the start that it was a movie that didn't really figure out who the main character was until the end, I think you were talking about how it should be about her. Am I right? It should be about her. It should be about her or like 33 and a third short films about her and all the little slices of relationships that she has within this house. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd watch a whole movie just about all of her like sleeveless 70s sweaters. <laughs> it's <laughs> like on a professor salary. That's a lot of fucking sweaters. Anyway, she's the most... It's Paige's performance because this is kind of an Alex P. Keaton 1.75 dimension prospect on paper, I would say. Maybe I'm being unfair, but. No, I mean, I think I think that's very much like a kind of contemporary thing, too, with this style of movie where it's like, let's make one of the kids a Nietzschean. (laughs) Yeah. Or and then Christine Lottie is his is his department secretary. And she has like three lines like this is a movie that got pitched and bought on Dennis Quaid and Sarah Jessica Parker. And then I think maybe everybody involved knew that the real engine was in a completely other room, but what can they do? Yeah. So you're at a 5.5? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, she, uh, Paige and and Thomas Aiden Church definitely are just carrying the load. And if it had just been a movie about them with everybody else as just sort of characters that move in and out, it would have been better if it... Uh, if this entire movie had just been the exposition at the start of another movie about yeah. the aftermath, like you were saying, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. raising twins, like if, if this was all just preface, it would have been fine. You could have gotten gotten through it in a really, really short span of time and it would have been better. But yeah, I mean, it is a touch better than the average. But, you know, that's really the heroism of two people uh, mm. overcoming a script that doesn't know where where it wants to go. Yeah. I really um, was quite frustrated with the execution and the foundational wimpiness of the production. So I put that at a two, but then on potential and a couple of performances, and we'll get to him in a second, Quaid is pretty good. Maybe it's because they don't make him wear glasses this time. (laughs) So that was at like a seven. So I just averaged it and I was at a four and a half for this because I'm. I'm a little mad. <laughs> I mean, how many times? Like, I, I feel like this is a lot of times. 
that 50 plus Quaid characters are at the mercy of fellow characters not understanding barrier methods of birth control. <laughs> Like, <laughs> this, this seems to be happening a, a lot in the last half season, half season plus. Anyway, the Quaidosity. I was expecting to be once again exhausted by his attempts to perform Frump. Mm -hmm. And I actually clipped that scene that you referred to earlier where she's like, you know, I've been timing it and here's the last time I said something. Um, so let me just play that clip and then we can discuss. Respond to literary text using precisely the same fundamental interpretive categories as authors and poets used to create them. So there's no need to posit any kind of unstable ontology or ruptured consciousness. Are you following me? Yeah. Did you make any coffee? Something from the dessert menu? No, it's too late yeah, for coffee. It's, um... I tell you what, uh, one piece of chocolate cake and two forks, two plates. So, no one Thank you. has ever looked at this process of cultural criticism through this. 45 lens. minutes. Excuse me? 45 minutes. That's how long it's been since I've uttered a single word. Leaving aside the believability of this exchange, like this character as written slash anyone who's ever been born would not be quiet for that long. Yes. Or would not just like go to like pretend they had to go to the bathroom and then leave. I mean, I don't know. That's not necessarily credible. And I'm not totally sure I agree with his choices as far as like imperiously ordering a single slice of cake. Yeah. But. You know, when the parody of the thing is the same as the thing, like a parody of a soap opera is still a soap <laughs> opera and it's still like enjoyably bad. Yeah. I think he is doing some extremely grand actor studio exercise version of an English professor that he thinks is completely over the top, but then it's actually it's actually hitting it right down the fairway. So his parody of the thing is kind of the same mm -hmm. as the thing. All he needed was like some clever spectacles in my experience. But I thought he was good in this. I bought it shockingly, like not entirely. And I think he might have been wearing a fake belly. I don't know what your <laughs> feeling was about the like they made sure we saw it like they would put him in profile they would show him sort of pitched forward, walking kind of trumpily, actually, <laughs> to make sure that we saw the belly. I'm not sure it was real, but I bought him and I thought he was surprisingly well cast. And if not the best performance, then not distracting. What do you think? I'm actually right there with you on that. It wasn't until about 45 minutes in actually in that scene where I thought he might have been turning it up a little high, but right. I realized I had gotten through half of the movie and I had not had a moment where I went, you know, hey, DQ, you are not equal to this moment. You're not doing this well enough. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised. I think part of it is that he has a certain fastidiousness to his speech once he gets a character who... I think he thinks or he knows is more intelligent than he is and is speaking in a way that he won't. Mm -hmm. And so there is a kind of like native pedagogical, like pedantic turn to the way he hits words that by his, you know, seeming to uh, sort of struggle with more elevated language in the past, it seems like that got converted to this is a person who's not doing it because he's unfamiliar with it. This is a person who's so familiar with it that he's developed this patter and this form of delivery that 
was initially artificial, but that is like come to subsume his personality. And so, you know, what we're seeing, or at least like, I think a better version of this movie would have said, this is what we're seeing is like, we're peeling off those layers of acceptable pretension that kind of accrete on this person who has been put in a position for so long where he expects to brook no contradiction or interruption. Right. You know, like he's evolved into this piece of shit. This isn't the way he normally is. So, yeah, like I just think that the way in the past Quaid has sort of struggled with this material works perfectly for the kind of like acculturated artifice that this kind of character has. Yeah. And kudos to these creators for seeing that this is someone who can play professorial character who like this sort of this level of pretentious blathering is now lizard brain yeah for or like executive function basically and um he doesn't realize that as you were saying like he will he expects and will tolerate no interruption and it never comes but he doesn't realize that it's not because he's authoritative it's because he's boring <laughs> right so yeah. Or that everybody else in his life has been burned from trying to interrupt this, you know, not tirade, but monologue. Yeah. And that it's just better, like, it'll be over faster if you don't try to talk. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not going to work if you do. <laughs> uh, if Candy Crush had been invented, they're playing whatever you would play on your Nokia brick, that little snake game, I guess. I was waiting for her to take out her, uh, her little, like, T-Mobile sidekick. Oh, yeah. I can browse Wikipedia on this. It only takes 90 <laughs> seconds to load. <laughs> I miss sidekicks, actually. <laughs> I thought it was like just flipping the screen around. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. With well, the little sw that little schwack noise it yeah. made. Kind of like thumb it up and like whack. Really satisfying. I mean, had I had one, I would have like twirled it into any nearby open container of liquid immediately. And bye-bye, <laughs> <laughs> cool days. But um, yeah, I was impressed by him and also i felt a little frustrated on his behalf that like finally he's been cast as this guy and he's nailing it and for what yeah for this <laughs> it's kind of you know maybe i was just in this mindset because thomas hayden church is in it like this is a jamadi part and when you're used to jamadi and you get quaid that can be like the re-entry into the Jamada sphere could be a little rough, uh, kind of like yeah. this comparison, but uh, he does it. He inhabits it. So I, it's not very quady. He is mm -hmm. a dad character, but he's sucking at it, <laughs> and he's not a dilf. There's like one grin, and he's only deploying it because he's in Dutch with a student who's like, "I've had you in like four classes. What's my name?" And he's busted. Yeah. So he's not all that stereotypically quady, but he's surprisingly good. And uh, so I'm giving him a seven. Is that too high? No, I was at seven and a half. I thought like, you know, am I, do I push it up to eight? Like what is not there mm. that I would say, okay, he didn't get those two. And I think for me, it's that middle, starting in that restaurant scene where the kind of, you know, verbal fop <laughs> dial got turned up like just one click past where it needed to be it's not outrageous it's not horribly improbable but it is kind of a linchpin conversation because he's so rejected by her after he's ventured out and decided okay well maybe this can be part of my life again trying to appeal to a grown woman 
that like it really does sort of jog him a little and that kind of begins the the arc of change in a way that his kids and and his adopted brothers interventions haven't started that process and so like i mean it works organically in it i just like want to dial it back a little and i guess i don't know maybe that other missing point and a half is like there's not there needed to be one more rascal grin at the uh maybe going to the impound lot and the guy's like what's my name well <laughs> darn yeah <laughs> yeah he has one in the snapshots i think yeah if, no, if for nothing more than like you know we could have gotten a sign of like well clearly this guy won over a woman in the past <laughs> Yeah. You know, he's he's alienated his kids, but they're trapped. All right. <laughs> they have nowhere else they can go. And then his half brother is a deadbeat. So he also has nowhere else he can go. But his wife could have gone somewhere. Why didn't she? And maybe the little grin there would have been enough to be like, all right, there's there's a charmer underneath all the, these uh, tweedy layers of prick. It's not a perfect performance, but compare this to sort of a similar role from 15 years before in DOA, where we're expected to believe he's a professor slash novelist, I believe. This is going back a while in the collection of brain grapes. But like, this is someone who is just trying to say all the words in the right order and Mm -hmm. put his toes on the tape at the right places. And I mean, that was also an action movie, so different ideas that he's trying to convey, but this is just much more convincing. At times, it sounds like he learned his lies while he was drunk, and that's how he's delivering them, but I'm okay with that because I was an English major and relatable. <laughs> but yeah, I this was frustrating, but he was good. Yeah. We don't usually get, that's not the proportion. Yeah. Is it? Good for Dennis. Yeah. Way to go, man. Good for Dennis. Good for Elliot. Good for Thomas Hayden Church. And we don't have to watch this again. That is true. Next time on Quaid in Full, Vantage Point. In the meantime, use that flight to New York to check out our show notes and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quaid in Full. Quaid in Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jed Lund and edited by Jed Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Take a break from translating that old French ham recipe and go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Are you always this contentious, or is this the result of the head trauma? I prefer language to be precise.